Hello, and welcome to this special Q&A episode. Now, this is the first of some special episodes that I'm doing where I'm actually answering some questions that have been sent in by you, the beautiful UA community. These episodes, they're a bit more off the cuff. They're unscripted and there's the chance that I'll say things that I may regret later uh, and share things that are personal to me because I can have some strong opinions about things and ultimately am really passionate about making sure that you have the information that you need. You know, I love being able to answer your questions, help you feel more empowered and informed for your projects. That's what Undercover Architect is all about. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Now, we're going to get to those questions and answers really soon, but first I want to let you know about something that I think will be super helpful to many of you. This episode is brought to you by my free online workshop, Five Ways to Get It Right in Your Home Design. Look, with all the ideas and the inspiration and whoever you're working with or whether you're designing your home yourself, it can be super hard to design and then commit to a floor plan and have certainty and know confidently that it's going to create the home that you dream of. As an architect with 25 years of industry experience and having designed hundreds and hundreds of homes for homeowners like you, I know that there are key elements to every successful design and that there are specific characteristics that ensure a home will suit you now and always. In this free online workshop, I share tips, ideas, strategies, things to avoid, things to get right to really help you know how to get it right in your home design. And this free online workshop, it's available to watch now at a time convenient to you. So just head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash five ways. And that's the number five ways, W-A-Y-S. And that link will be in the resources as well. Now let's get on with the episode. So our first question is from Elizabeth, who's curious about some of the alternative and sustainable and panelised materials that we often see be used overseas in shows like Grand Designs. So here's Elizabeth. Hi, Amelia. My name's Elizabeth. I'm in Castle Hill in New South Wales. First up, thank you for producing such a fabulous podcast and providing so much fantastic, informative, entertaining and helpful information. It's made a huge difference to how I'm approaching the design of our new home. And that new home we're planning to build in 2020, just as soon as we settle the sale of our current home and find the right block of land. Um, We'll be living in that home with my husband and our three boys, who will be 16, 14 and 11 by that stage, and our two very boisterous standard Labradoodles and six budgies live in a large cage in our house. I'm very passionate about this home um, embracing all things sustainability and I'm quite intrigued by some of the alternative prefabricated panel constructions that I've seen on Grand Designs over the years that uh, seem to be more prevalent in Europe than in Australia. So I know there are concrete and structural insulated panels and cross-laminated timbers and a whole lot of other acronyms, um, but I don't know much more than that. So I'm wondering what are the benefits of um, using 
the prefabricated panels and the different types and how they stack up against a regular uh, brick and timber construction. Uh, do they impact the flexibility of the design, uh, the durability of the design, um, cost, uh, time to build um, and sustainability? And can they uh, be used to achieve a passive house status? Thank you. That's a lot of question, but I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer. And once again, thank you for so uh, such a great podcast and all the information you provide to all of us. Well, this is a, a really fantastic question. And I mean, all the questions I received were fantastic, but <laughs> I loved this one because I do get, I do get asked this a lot, actually, uh, about what I suppose these systems that we see a lot used on particularly overseas programs, you know, it's always amazing to watch overseas versions of grand designs or other renovating and building programs because you'll see different types of construction methodologies, different types of materials, and that's an opportunity to think about other ideas for your own project. Now, in Australia, at least at a, you know, one-off single home residential level, we've been pretty slow to adopt a lot of prefabricated building elements and construction that we see in overseas locations. Now, this is not necessarily industry-wide. There's prefab and uh, sort of, I suppose, different types of panelised construction systems that are used in commercial and retail um, and projects where, you know, fast construction is really essential for improving the bottom line overall. And uh, But in terms of single residential it's it's still pretty traditional, you know. There's a few reasons for this. One is our weather. You know, in most locations, we've got fantastic weather that we can build in year round. Whereas if you look overseas in Europe or in the States, you know, in particular parts of the States, and you'll often see this on these programs like Grand Design, that they're racing the weather. They're racing either the snow coming or heavy rains coming, uh, you know, lots of ice, those types of things that are going to prevent them from being able to work easily externally. And so they're always trying to get to a point where they've got the building to lock up and they can be continuing work on the inside without being subjected to pretty harsh elements. Now, another reason that there can be a slow uptake to some of these uh, alternative types of materials and products and building methods is that it can often depend on the experience of builders and tradespeople and the industry, and also just a resistance to change overall. You know, we don't have a lot of apprentices coming through. There's, you know, a lot of the construction methodology that we adopt is actually driven by larger scale residential, you know, volume builders and what they have access to in terms of trades and suppliers. And so the way that they're geared up to deliver homes can often then have a trickle-down effect through the one-off builder doing a home. Now, that's not to say that the one-off builder doing a home experiments with um, alternative products or, you know, you do see uh, builders become really passionate about specific delivery methods or sustainability, for example, and do a lot of work to have confidence around particular types of products. Um, but when they're having to warrant a home, when they're having to deliver a home that they know is going to last for decades, then uh, you know, you can understand their wariness and, and I suppose hesitancy to use a product that might have only been on the market for five years, um, that hasn't necessarily been tested over a period of time that they have to know that they need to stand, you know, beside the house and, and 
uh, know that it's still going to last long term. And sometimes too, it can be it can be simpler for a builder to just work with products and materials that they know um, that they know have been around for a long time and will last a long time. And uh, sometimes um, that's what most homeowners expect as well. So. It's really, you know, there have been some changes, obviously, that have been adopted more mainstream, which are things like pre-nailed frames, uh, you know, pre-nailed trusses, things that will speed up construction in that regard. But if you think about it, most homes these days are still constructed from, you know, sort of bricks and sticks. So frame goes up, you know, brickwork goes up or lightweight cladding goes on. It's all fairly labour intensive, you know, hands on uh, traditional uh, methodologies that we've been using for years. Now, there's when we look at prefabricated panels, there's a few different types that are available on the market, and this by no means is exhaustive. This list, um, I, there's just a few that I've sort of gone through to mention, and they they are there's lots of acronyms that are used to describe these things. So. There's things like SIPs or structurally uh, structural insulated panels. So they will be what's known as OSB board, which is uh, oriented strand board, and then it'll, which is basically like a mulched, you know, a mulched and pressed timber. So um, it's quite sort of yellowy in colour, and it's one of those boards that you see um, get used in sort of sub flooring and things like that. So SIPs will have this as their external. Uh, material and then in the core um, it's almost like a big sandwich so uh, there'll be a polystyrene core and the nature of that polystyrene can vary based on the sip and where it's made um, and what the company is aiming to do and those types of things so um, sometimes the OSB board that oriented strand board will be on the interior lining sometimes there's some boards that they do apply lining on the interior they're generally designed to have cladding put over them internally and externally so the SIPs are you know there's an expectation they'll be lined externally uh, and lined internally however some projects do expose the OSB board internally I actually saw when I was researching for this answer there was a great architectural project that had all of the OSB board exposed internally so they'd worked with all the sizes of the material and uh, accepted that it was going to be exposed and you know that creates a completely different aesthetic than if you were going to put plasterboard and paint on the inside so um, there's you know, it's a case of understanding that's the material type. Then, you know, in terms of there's so there's SIPs, the structural insulated panels. Then there's also other panelized products like, for example, Hebel, which is an aerated concrete panel that can be used for floors and for walls. Uh, there's a material called Ritec and there's a range of sort of other brand name combination or different types of this type of material, which is basically a like a panelised wall construction. There's Bondor, which is uh, like a cool room panelling, uh, but does get used obviously for, I mean, I've used it in projects for roofing. It's got uh, a roofing profile on one side of it, uh, insulated core, and then flat powder coated aluminium on the underside of it. And then there's lots of others, you know, there'll be brand names that you've probably heard of that are generally like a panelized construction. So they'll have skins on inside and outside with some kind of insulated core in the middle. And so um, they, the basically what they're promising is that they build the wall component tree in one hit by offering this sort of panelized option. Some of them need to go on frames as well. Some of them you still need to assemble a frame, but you put this product on it. Others can, are self-supporting and um, they form the kind of wall with the componentry that is in the panel. 
Now, the things to consider with this, these products is that a lot of the advantages that they promote are around the speed of construction and the fact that it's a complete system with insulation and internal and external lining. So, um, and that insulation is often talked about to provide at much higher levels than standard wall construction uh, with it. So, and then sound insulation is another big one as well. I remember doing uh, the Norton Street Cinemas in Leichhardt in Sydney very early in my career. And Leichhardt's under the flight path in Sydney. And so we used Rytec because it had really huge sound insulation properties for all of the internal walls. And it also didn't have, it was quite a thin wall construction. So in commercial and retail where you're trying to maximise the amount of, I suppose, lettable space or available uh, space in the in the building, then having a thinner wall construction that still does all the jobs of insulation and structure and everything like that is a really valuable addition to the construction methodology and so Rytec offered these things sound insulation took up a lot of you know took up very little room thin wall construction but did all of the performance criteria that we needed and went up very quickly so you know it's those kinds of things and that's why they do get used a lot more in commercial and retail projects um, because speed and floor area are such big criteria that um, that matter and mean money in those types of projects Um, now Using products like this can dictate a particular set out or a particular design based on the size and the assembly detail of the material. Not all of them are like that. Some of them can be cut down to size. Generally, though, to get the efficiency out of them, understanding the size of them and the componentry of them will be more effective so that you can work with those uh, constraints and really utilize them in kind of a modular way. Now, some will also require specific engineering input. So that may be that you need to work with the company to get a specific design done to apply their material or product to your project. Um, some may require drawings. So it may be sort of like shop drawings may be part of the process where they take your design, they apply the system, the panelized system over it. Um, that then creates kind of a list of parts and an order process that then, you know, you approve that then goes back into their system in order to be able to manufacture things efficiently. So it's quite a bit of a different approach to building with a timber frame, you know, brick veneer, um, where there'll be takeoffs, there'll still be takeoffs, but the engineering process isn't, is done differently because obviously you'll have a draftsperson, building designer, or architect drawing up the floor plans that an engineer that will then apply information over the top of, but it's not like that information then needs to necessarily disappear. If you're getting pre-nailed frames, then it can go up to off to the um, framing uh, supplier to create drawings and things like that. But it's not it's not quite the same as getting shop drawings done by one of these kind of companies. So that can be part of the process, and that can be something that's worth considering in terms of just another step to consider um, in the delivery of your project. Now. Most of these types of products, SIPs, Hebel, um, those those types of products will uh, require a specialist installer. Not always, um, but sometimes the manufacturers actually stipulate that they have to be installed by a recommended installer in order for the product to be warranted. Now, this can be because the installer needs specific training uh, in order to install it so that the product maintains its integrity, it's weather tight, it doesn't you know, break down over time. For example, from what I understand, look, I've never used SIPs myself. I have done uh, projects with Hebel in them. I've done projects with Bondor and Rytec. 
and those types of panelised systems, but I haven't done a project with SIPs and I, um, or, you know, the SIPs with oriented strand board on them. And uh, from what I can, from what I understand from my research is if the core is exposed, um, it can break down over time. So if it's obviously essential that somebody who knows what they're doing installs it so they make sure that it's weather tight in the way that it needs to be. Same thing with applying cladding to the outside of it running any, um, if you're going to run any cabling through it, those types of things, somebody who knows the material. And sometimes that person has to be trained in order for the company to warrant their product. So it's a case of really uh, understanding whether that's going to be something you need to uh, take into consideration if you are planning on using these these types of products. Um, Now, because a specialist contractor might need to be used, sometimes your access to these specialist contractors can be limited. So this can be where the cost can come into play because if you're only able to choose, you know, one or two installers, then, you know, that obviously changes uh, potentially what their availability might be in terms of when they can do your project, how they might price your project. Uh, And some people then... I've seen people be really keen to use something like SIPs, um, but there might only be one installer in their area. And so they get to the pointy end of their project looking at, you know, getting starting construction and they're a little nervous that if there's only one installer that they're pretty much going to be backed into a corner on price and on timeline and that's not going to help them feel in control of their project. So um, now all that can be alleviated, like that can all be alleviated. You can, you can iron out that risk through how you incorporate that installer in your design process, how you incorporate thinking about the material in your design process and how you kind of get on their pipeline of work. So it's not something that necessarily needs to mean that you've got to eliminate the choice here, but it is something to be aware of. So obviously uh, understanding early what availability there is for these products in your area and you know sometimes the product might be manufactured by a central location somewhere else in the country but then they'll have local installers that they can recommend who are familiar with their product warranted to use their product and uh, they have a good relationship with and so sometimes if you are thinking about using one of these types of products the best thing to do is to jump on the website of the company give them a call they'll often have technical lines or customer service lines that you can jump on speak to um, you know ask questions about the feasibility for its use in your project its application to your project your location your climate and uh, ask for a list of their recommended local installers that you can then make contact with to see are they used to doing a project like yours on your site what input can they have during the design phase how do they normally work with homeowners you know how do they work with designers what are their recommendations for the process I generally find that people who are working with these alternative building materials are really passionate about them there's a reason that they're not just doing standard stuff so um, they're often then more, you know, open, more helpful. Um, you know, that's not that's a generalisation, but they're but I find that they're really passionate and they want to see their product used by more people. And so they, you know, whenever I, like I was researching this, and you know, you jump on the SIPs sites, and there's like there's Facebook groups and there's um, there's lots of frequently asked questions and there's downloaded downloads and there's case studies and all these really fantastic resources for something that you know doesn't seem to be used you know if you look around a suburb you don't see SIPs being used you know on many houses and yet there's them giving you access to all this great knowledge and information and help so I think that's something to be said for 
for these alternative building materials, these less commonly used building materials, is that they do really want to see and help people understand how to work with them well. So you can tap into that and use that to your advantage in terms of seeing whether it's a good fit for your project. Now, um, many can definitely be used in a passive house. That was another part of Elizabeth's question. So, um, you know, and you will find that some passive house builders are using these types of building products because they are the wall system in totality. So they can get air tightness working. They can, you know, get that speed of construction. They can get the insulation level. Um, a lot of them have got really high levels of insulation, much higher than you'd get from putting bats into a, you know, a brick veneer wall um, and, and in a thinner kind of, uh, dimension as well. So they definitely do. Again, if you're looking at doing Passive House, of course, there's there are episodes that we did in season eight of the podcast um, where we interviewed builder, architect, homeowner, uh, consultant and uh, certifier and you know got lots of great information and intel on Passive House. And there was also um, the introductory episode on it uh, about what Passive House is and really understanding it. So if that is something that you're looking at, you know, Passive House is, again, really big group of passionate people really wanting to see that movement take hold in Australia because they, and I believe that it's a really fantastic way to build a thermally stable, comfortable, energy efficient, fantastic home. And so if that's what you're seeking to do and it's something that excites you, then you can tap into the resources of Passive House Australia and look for certified designers and builders and those types of things and start those conversations. Now, um, with these types of building systems, you, you're often better off designing with them from the start. Now, that can be it's not always the case, but that can often be the tricky thing because people like to keep their options open. They like to know that they're going to have flexibility to change their mind should they not um, want to use it down the track or feel like they're backed into a corner with a specific supplier or installer. So that can be problematic because you may have taken a particular design approach based on the modularity of the system and then get to the point where you're going to be building it out of brick veneer anyway. And so um, that can be tricky. So I do, you know, the way to get around that obviously is to um, really, I suppose, get to the understanding of why you would be using this material type, why you would be really exploring these these options. And if that why really, really resonates with you, if it's about because you want sustainability, because you want, um, you know, you're, you've, you like the mission of the company that supplies these materials, you know, because the builder that you really want to work with is super experienced at it and really likes using them and has a lot of great project examples. You know, if you can connect with a lot of that why, then that'll help carry you through and stay committed to that decision. And the thing is that if you're starting with it from the beginning and working with these people in a collaborative way, then it means that you can be managing your costs and your design expectations and be getting into people's timelines as well so it doesn't hold up your project. Now, you'll find that often these systems are they're touted as cost comparative, but it's important to know that this is usually in comparison to the whole building system that they're replacing. So, for example, I remember when we did the investigation on using Bondor, which is the, you know, like the cool room panelling for want of a better term. It's not cool room panelling, but that's the way it's often referred to. Um, it's an insulated panel of uh, roofing profile on one side and flat aluminium powder coated on the underside of it. So I use this on the roof of our outdoor room on our third renovation. I've used it in quite a few projects actually, usually over the outdoor areas um, because it goes up very quickly. It's uh, what's known as simply supported. So it only needs to be picked up on either end. And so it can span quite, it can 
span quite long distances and still be a very thin profile. And uh, I like, and so it meant, means, particularly with outdoor spaces, I can express the structure like a pergola or something like that, and then basically just sit this roofing element on top, and it'd be quite tidy and neat and very simply constructed. Then, um, and it it gives everything in one. So it has obviously the powder coated aluminium lining to the underside of it, which then is weather resistant, um, you know, great to be able to just hose off, brush cobwebs off really easily. It's got the roofing profile on the top side, which comes in standard colour bond colours. And it all goes up very, very fast. Now, um, and it has that insulation. I remember standing under it as it went up on the outdoor room of our third renovation. And it was a very warm day and, you know, the pergola was up and my husband and a carpenter were installing it and it was instantaneous. The coolness underneath it was just amazing. So now when I looked at the comparison, if I compared it to just roofing the outdoor room with, you know, standard colour bond roofing, it was not cheaper. But when I compared it to the cost of roofing the outdoor room with roofing, Internal structure, so rafters, insulation to the same R value, a, a, a suffete or a ceiling to the underside of it, and then the time it would take for people to build that, then the bondor was less expensive, okay? But you have to compare the whole delivery of the system and I suppose believe in the advantages that it's going to deliver you. Now, I really liked, for example, that the Bondor just gave me this really clean line. I didn't have, we just had the pergola, it didn't have uh, very much internal structure at all, and it was just picked up on either end and connected back into the house. Super simple. I used it in an extension of uh, over a two story void. So we could use it there because you weren't ever close enough to the ceiling to see that it was metal, and um, and they the we hung a great big kind of set of pendant lights from the middle of it um, which could be channeled in so this is the thing there's things to understand about how you run plumbing through these products how you run electrical through these products but but compare when you're comparing cost just don't do yourself a disservice by just comparing it to you know one part of the component tree compare it to everything really try and do that cost comparison or you'll often find that the company that's supplying it has already done that so they may say it's not any cheaper but it's much faster and if you can save time and that can be worth money to you as well. As well. Now, um, the other thing to consider is sometimes these materials will then, you know, because of their better insulative properties uh, and, uh, you know, the sustainability component, that they'll lower the future running costs of the home as well. So that can be taken into account as a potential cost saving down the track. If your electricity bills are going to be lowered, um, you know, a lot of people don't factor in those ongoing costs. The the, it's essential that you also understand how they're made. So just because, how do I say this? Sometimes materials are promoted as sustainable because they've got high insulative properties or they're fast to build with, um, but the materials that they're made with are not sustainable materials. So they might have high VOCs or they might be toxic as they break down. So it's worthwhile checking out the environmental credentials of the material itself as much as I suppose the sustainability of what it delivers. So it can vary. Um, there are some websites which talk about the different qualities of the polystyrene that's in the SIPs core and to look at using, you know, specifying one type of core over another based on its toxicity as it breaks down. Now, apparently, again, according to my research, this is all just from my research. Um, as I said, I haven't used the product personally, but uh, from what I could see that 
it only breaks down if it's exposed to the weather and if it's installed properly, it shouldn't be exposed to the weather, uh, that core. So it's these kinds of things to just understand. Now, this may all sound like a great big headache, um, but this is the thing when you're using materials that haven't been used for generations, um, then there's some this research is kind of necessary. Like the you know, first time that bricks were fired and glazed <laughs> was a very, very long time ago. And so we have had the opportunity to test them over generations and know how they perform. Um, these materials, which, you know, SIPs, I think, have been around for 40 years or something like that. So they have been around a long time, but obviously the materiality of them will have changed over time. So it's just a case of doing some homework and understanding what goes into them and how they're made. Now, uh, as I said, understanding what you're going to do in terms of fixing things to them, you know, that bond or product that I spoke about before, you can run cabling in the joints between the panels. The panels from memory are about 90 centimetres wide. They have built whole houses out of it that they've then like done a ducted skirting along the floor to run all the electrical work in. Um, you can, in some of these products, you can core out certain parts of them to run plumbing to through. Sometimes you will be um, you will be allowing for a cavity in front of them on the inside to run your plumbing through. There's, you know, these types of considerations in what you might need to leave exposed versus what you might need to be building out concealment to. So just understanding what the implications of using that as a wall construction is. Um, as I said earlier, call the call the manufacturers, ask about local installers, speak to people who have used it, understand if you can speak to their clients as well. You know, sometimes I generally find that people who use these products and who work with these products are passionate about these products. So you might find that there's a homeowner that's happy to speak to you about them, you know, talk you through their doubts, their concerns, how they overcame them. You know, you never know when you just ask the question, what's possible? And, um, and as I said, many, many do start out with wanting to use them and then end up going back to conventional methods because they're just worried they're going to be backed into a corner with limited choice around who they might work with and how the process might happen. So if you are considering it, start early, get connected with your why, do your research, find great people to work with, and um, that can usually help you stay on track and it not be derailed and you end up with something you didn't really want at the end um, because it all just felt too hard okay so uh, really getting people on board that can help and support you through the process of using materials that may not be as conventional in residential construction um, can be super helpful you know as I said a lot of these products are getting used very regularly in commercial and retail construction because the benefits of their time saving measures and their you know space saving measures is seen as really effective so um, it's also worthwhile to just understand if it is being used at scale in a different sector of the construction industry that can sometimes help you feel more comfortable about using it in your home as well all right I hope you found that helpful um, there's there's lots more information to find out about SIP so I've put some resources uh, and some links uh, on the website for you. So head to the show notes and you'll be able to get information on that. All right, cheers. Now, next we have a question from Nicola, who's wanting to know about kitchen designs and what might be on trend versus what people might be saying that they don't want to do anymore. Hi, I'm Nicola. I live two hours north of Auckland in New Zealand. I've been listening to your podcast from day one. Fantastic. Um, we've just downsized and bought a three bedroom, two bathroom home. We had moved from a five-bedroom plus study plus three-bathroom home, thanks to your podcasts, <laughs> and we've been able to renovate. So my question is, 
we're done, so we're good. But everybody was talking on house and some of the architects on house saying that walk-in pantries were so yesteryear and also sort of breakfast bars and bar stools were yesteryear. And we actually put in a black kitchen with French oak laminate drawers and um, white around the fridge and the oven. So we've got big black <laughs> benches and uh, a couple of those cupboards are black. But yeah, so wood and uh, wood and black and white is our kitchen. Have you found with clients that black is staying? It's very kind of out there colour because it came in a few years ago and we didn't ever use that in the 80s. <laughs> is black still in and will stay in for a wee while? And also this breakfast bar idea. We have a table that we sit at as well. We don't just perch up on stools. Um, it seems like poles that they do on house and places like that are half and half. People love breakfast bar or well, they don't. I love mine. I'm happy with it. And, um, yeah, and if um, you think walk-in pantries or butler's pantries, we don't have a sink in now, they're just a walk-in pantry. Uh, like yesterday, news. I don't think they are. I think they're fantastic. But they seem to be going out of fashion as well. So just your thoughts on that. Thanks very much. Bye. Well, Nicola, thanks for recording your question from New Zealand. I always love hearing from overseas listeners of the podcast and it's great to know that the podcast has helped you and thank you for listening for so long. So um, now I I think this is a great question because I think that we can get caught up in, you know, seeing, I suppose, trends move and seeing things that we've made decisions about and been committed to in our project that may have happened fairly recently, um, then start to get questioned or shift slightly as people make different choices, you know, and things move on. And it can start to sort of make us feel, and I'm not suggesting this is what's happening for you, but it can start to make us feel a little bit unsure about whether we made the right choice for our own project, whether it's going to limit its resale value, I suppose, or the potential that others might want to have it down the future. Um, and, you know, so we can kind of get caught up in that. And that's just the nature of, you know, I think that trends generally. And I do think that, you know, my feeling about trends and what's in versus what's not in is it can really just vary depending on where you look. So in terms of your, you know, immediate question, I'm still seeing loads of butler's pantries, walk-in pantries. I'm seeing spaces that are large enough to be an entirely second kitchen being put into people's floor plans. And so I'm in lots of forums, lots of, you know, obviously I have lots of members in courses and in my online community, um, but I'm also sort of in a lot of places online looking at what people are doing with building and renovating, not only here, but overseas and seeing like thousands of floor plans every year and the butler's pantry, the walk-in pantry, the kind of secondary kitchen space is still happening in loads and loads of floor plans. I'm also seeing people though questioning whether they want it or need it, you know, and I think that that those people are being more vocal about this. There's, they're questioning the status quo, they're questioning whether it's necessary and, and they're they're looking at whether it's necessary for their own home. And that might be driven by budget, by personal preference, by how they use, you know, these kinds of spaces, um, by particular values and, uh, and whether they think that the inclusion of this kind of space aligns with those things. So, 
There's also people just generally questioning how big their kitchen needs to be. And so things like the breakfast bar, you know, which is usually done in the island bench, but not always, that may be getting sacrificed for floor area to be used elsewhere to keep the kitchen more compact. Perhaps the kitchen configuration doesn't, uh, you know, provide for sufficient space to have an island bench. It's really going to depend on where the person is building or renovating, you know, the locality that they live in, the kind of size home they're doing, what they've got to work with and, you know, how they sort of personally live their lives as to how things might be getting set up. You know, I have worked on, uh, in my previous practice, we were auditing the design of apartments that were going up in Brisbane and they were reaching pre-settlement and the kitchens were so small that they didn't have an oven in them and the purchases were going to the point of settling and doing their pre-settlement inspections of these apartments and getting very cross that there was no oven in their kitchen. Now the apartments weren't tiny, you know, they were small apartments, compact apartments. The kitchen design could have accommodated an oven, but somewhere along the design phase somebody had made a decision that the kinds of people who bought these apartments in this area were not the kinds of people who necessarily needed an oven to cook with. And so they'd made a design decision that that wasn't an inclusion that was going to be in there. I think they had a space for a microwave and they had a cooktop, but they had no oven and they had a single dish drawer uh, dishwasher. So the, there was a pushback in during the pre-settlement inspections. And so the, we, we were auditing these, this project to then look at how an oven could be included. And so, and they were retrofitting these kitchens to include an oven, you know, so there's these kind, there are these kinds of trends that then get represented in articles. You'll see articles happening about, you know, apartments, not including, you know, large cooking, um, appliances and those kinds of things and then that can kind of start to infiltrate into other parts of the residential sector and so it's kind of just this cross-pollination of perhaps what might be happening in one sector of the residential market starts to sort of show up in other parts of the residential market as well. So you know it's always really interesting to see what people are thinking is on trend and what's not and where that might be coming from and what that might be being informed by. You can also see like, you know, some online renovators and, uh, you know, sort of other spaces where they're designing kitchens that are like football fields, you know, they're so big. Um, and, you know, bench, island benches that are five metres long and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it, there's such extremes of the spectrum but I'm still seeing down the middle lots of people including butler's pantries appliance cupboards walk-in pantries some kind of secondary storage space to their kitchen itself now the thing to remember of course is that people who comment online and polls that take responses for people online it's only the people that want to respond that are going to participate in those polls and have a say in those polls and so you know there'll be loads of people who don't even see those polls or who don't feel the need to offer their opinion in those polls and so you know that's one of those things that is always a case too you'll find sometimes that the most vocal people in polls or the the strongest kind of opinion in polls is people who want to defend the opinion that they have about their own property so it's a case of just really tempering what you're seeing and understanding how many people are responding like what measure of people is that actually kind of incorporating I find those house polls are actually such a small segment of survey people like when you think about the number of houses that are built every year just in Australia um, then 
the number of people that are responding to those polls is such a very small percentage of that that it's actually not really reflective of what's going on. They can be a really good tone to see. I often find they're really interesting just to see what people are talking about and what people are considering and thinking about when they're, you know, and seeing how people are starting to maybe consider other options and alternatives to what is potentially always being seen out there. Now, um, if you look through the Facebook groups, you look through the online forums, people are still doing, they're choosing dark colours for their kitchens, for their bathrooms. Um, we're still seeing that happen. We're still seeing um, a lot of white kitchens as well. So that monochromatic choice for, um, which is seen as kind of a safe choice for colours is still something that's very evident. And, you know, timber's often being chosen to as a natural kind of injection to warm up that monochromatic palette. So that's something that's still out there and it's happening both in, in interiors and in exteriors in homes. But we're also starting to see a shift. And this is something that I think we're seeing overseas. But it's also coming through in my conversations with people in the industry talking about colour psychology and colour forecasting. You know, Dulux's colour forecasting had a, for 2020 had a lot of natural colour tones. I'm going to be sharing an interview with uh, the woman at Dulux who's, uh, who's, you know, heads up the part of the group. I'm just trying to remember her proper job title. I think it's like creative and communications um, of uh, a manager of du- the Dulux group. And Andrea, I'm terribly sorry if I've got that wrong, we'll get it right in the actual podcast interview. Um, but yeah, she's responsible for color forecasting every year and has been for a long time. And, you know, very much about the natural tones and that connection to nature, really trying to bring that into the experience and the color choices and the texture choices that you make for your home. And so I think when you start to look at, you know, some of the stuff coming from Europe, if you look on Instagram at maybe some of the high-end kitchens happening in more bespoke one-off homes, you will start to see some more creative color palettes coming through. Um, Or I suppose they're braver. I mean, black's a pretty brave choice too, Um, but people choosing sort of muted greens or soft blues and things like that to really bring, I suppose, that natural color palette into their home. So there's more of that coming through. There's also people starting to really understand and want to understand colour psychology and how colour does uh, inform um, or impact the way that we feel and behave, not only in the places that we work and occupy uh, public buildings, but in our homes as well. And so I think that that will start to impact perhaps how these monochromatic colour trends start to move in the future. Now, a lot of the choices that people make from their home for their homes is going to depend on where they get their inspiration from. So it'd be interesting, Nicola, to see the kinds of things that you were being inspired by in terms of the colour choices that you were making for your home. I know that the home that I did in New Zealand for um, for the client that built a brand new home, the Andersons that did the they did a new home in Brisbane, then they moved to New Zealand and they built their kind of forever home there. That's an all black exterior. It's got a very dark kitchen in it. It's got, um, you know, they've done sort of dark feature walls. It's got, um, you know, it's a monochromatic colour palette that they've then sort of added features to and um, highlights to. And so um, it can be also about your locality. It can be about where you might be getting your inspiration from and the kinds of things that you're being drawn to. At the end of the day, this is a really personal choice. You're, you know, if you 
some people are getting their inspiration by wandering through lots of display villages and looking at, you know, project home builders. Some people are looking at um, high-end homes on Pinterest or on um, in, on Instagram and looking at, you know, particular accounts and things like that that they might be really gravitating towards that are, you know, European-based or um, American-based. Um, so I think it can depend where you're getting your inspiration from, what you're looking at, because that will feel like what is on trend to you. So, because you'll just be gathering more images of the stuff that you're attracted to and finding the stuff that you're attracted to and you'll see more and more of it and that will be things that then start to feel like what trend is. So the thing is that trends are so varied. There's so many different inspiration points and so many different sources of of places that we get kind of ideas and and, and uh, inspiration from that – we can then feel like that's what's happening everywhere. So it's like when you're, you know, buying a new car or, you know, that kind of thing. All of a sudden that's the car that you see everywhere and you think everybody owns it. So um, it sort of is kind of that type of thing. And uh, I'm still seeing lots of monochromatic kitchens, lots of black kitchens, lots of black interiors. So now um, what I'm loving most though, what I'm really loving and what I'm seeing more of particularly in the UA community, and I don't know if it's just because the UA community is such an incredible bunch of uh, people, but I'm seeing people, um, which you are, I'm seeing people really interrogate what they want for themselves. So it may be that, you know, I think that thing of like feeling like these things are on trend is because you are really shaping and crafting a palette of inspiration for the things that you're particularly drawn to. And you're getting really clear on what it is that you gravitate towards that has meaning for you. And ultimately, to me, that's going to be the most beautiful way to find the things that you love because they resonate with you and they have an authenticity and a relationship with kind of how you feel about yourself, the things that you like, the things that you're connected to, the things that have meaning to you and your family. And so that's what I really love. I see people doing the work to get to know their own desires and their wants and their needs and they're shaping their ideas around that and being braver about making authentic choices. Like choosing a black kitchen is a brave choice. Um, and so, you know, and I think having that injection of white and timber, that would be a brave choice. I mean, like they're, they're, if you were purely building a house for resale, you probably have gone with something much blander, you know, much much, much simpler and and probably less dramatic, you know, but the fact that it had meaning for you means that you've chosen something quite contemporary and striking and, um, you know, and something that has really resonates with you. So now in terms of the actual kind of functionality of walk-in pantries and butler's pantries and things like that, I think that when they're designed well, when they're designed efficiently, they can be a fantastic addition to a home. And I still think that some homes are going totally overboard with them and uh, creating kind of these almost secondary kitchen spaces and I picture homeowners kind of tucked away in these spaces, disconnected from their family, kids wondering where mum and dad has gone when they, you know, go to make their cup of tea or they go to make a piece of toast and they kind of disappear into this whole other room and nobody really knows where they are. So the... And it's all about obviously making the open plan kitchen that is on display more presentable to the house. So really just, I suppose, thinking about why you have these secondary kind of appliance or cupboards or butler's camp pantries or 
walk-in pantries and making them functional, efficient spaces that don't actually mean that you're hidden away from your family, but that, you know, they're useful storage places for the things that you need and they work for you. So um, now, you know, there was a stat that I actually, we shared in the recent episode on colour psychology with Karen Haller that she spoke about in her book. It's about British homeowners, but I would suspect that it's probably relevant for most um, locations, you know, in Australia and America where the ser- the research showed that 75% of British homeowners were styling their homes uh, the way that they thought other people would like them or for resale or for another person's opinion. It wasn't about what they wanted. And so, you know, this is the thing. We've got to understand as humans that we are, we are geared to want to belong. Uh, we want to feel liked. We want to feel that people think we're okay. And so when it comes to our home, you know, I see homeowners want others to think that they have good taste, that they've made sensible, you know, uh, choices that are also, you know, aspirational in terms of being on trend or even being ahead of the trend. And so, you know, that's why lots of online experts, um, you know, are creating kind of aspirational imagery. They're sort of doing these things you know you see you see for example the judges the judges walk into the rooms on the block and they're like talking about how you know avant-garde it is or how they're really pushing the envelope and you know I think I think that there's a there is an element in in some of us where we want that kind of reaction when people walk into our own home that we might have just finished Um, and you know you like this this thing of you're investing all of this money and you want to make stylish choices and some people just are able to completely nail getting things right with their colours and their design. And I think that we want that level of admiration when we do our own homes. That's totally natural. Um, I just encourage it to not be the driving force so that you're still making choices that are authentic for you that you will love, that they're things that have meaning to you, colours that have meaning to you, textures that have meaning to you. And the the inspiration that you're looking around at, that, that you're collecting imagery that you know has a resonance with you personally and with your family. And that ultimately too, that the things that you're looking to create are functional and that they will have durability and long-term, I suppose, you know, really usefulness for how you and your family live because things can be stunning, beautiful, on-trend, super stylish, but if they don't work, if they're not functional, if they're not durable, if they're not super useful, they will drive you mental. So, um, but yeah, great question. And I, I, you know, I love this idea of talking about trends and what's, what's in trend and what's not. And I, yeah, I think it really comes down to where you're looking and what you're seeing, because we can see things that are, you know, so diverse. We can see contemporary stark industrial style, um, homes and interiors being completely, you know, done now and we can go right through to Moroccan Venetian plaster you know very traditional encaustic tiles arched um, you know arched openings and then everything in between and that's all happening in current homes right now and it's such a like a myriad of choices and aesthetic designs and styles and all of it is being done right now So it's all current, it's all on trend and it's all happening. So, you know, there's something for everyone. It's really about you finding what works for you. 
Well, I do hope that you found that helpful and perhaps it has some relevance to your project or, you know, these are questions that you've been grappling with as well. Now, for links and resources that I mentioned in the podcast, head to the show notes or head to this episode on the Undercover Architect website where you'll be able to access those links and resources. Now, be sure to check out my free online workshop, Five Ways to Get It Right in Your Home Design. There's some incredibly useful information for the design of your new home or renovation. Honestly, it's an hour of your life that could save you thousands Uh, in avoided mistakes, months of time in wasted effort and energy with consultants and ultimately help you immensely on the journey to the home that you're dreaming of. So you can watch it at your convenience by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash five ways. Now tune in next time as I answer more questions from the UA community. We've got some fantastic topics being discussed for all kinds of projects, locations, budgets and dilemmas. As always, a huge thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.